0: I do
3: Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart, and it's good for all of us to be here. Since 1992, this is First Voices Radio. Antiochus and Ghost are sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Esopus, or what Americans call the catskilled Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Esopus in the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as FirstVoicesIndigenousRadio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. It is the most sacred place on earth, the birthplace of the Lakota, that has shaped thought, identity, and philosophy with Oceti Shakomi. Since before time was invented, the life-giving land known as Chesapa also known as the Black Hills of the State of South Dakota. Yet with the arrival of the first Europeans in 1492, the sacred land has been the site of conflict between the people it has nurtured and the settler state seeking to exploit and redefine it in its own image. Beginning with the Indian Wars of the 1800s, which saw the U.S. Army continually on the losing end against Sioux and Arapaho warriors and leading to the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, one of many broken treaties separating the Oyate from their land. The Black Hills have witnessed a greed-driven gold rush, the systematic erasure of its original inhabitants, and the creation of a most ironic shrine to white supremacy, Mount Rushmore. Lakota Nation versus the United States was directed by Jesse Shortbull and Laura Tomaselli, was written and narrated by acclaimed Oglala poet, Lonely Long Soldier and co-directed by Jesse Shortbull with Laura Tomaselli this powerful new documentary is a searing testament to the strength of the Oyate and a visually stunning rejoinder to the distorted image of a people long shaped by Hollywood First Voices Radio talks with Jesse Shortbull who works with the Oglala Lakota tribal government and we greet Jesse Shortbull uh, thank you, Jesse. You know that that means what that means in Lakota. And, uh, that's really good for us to be here and to do this interview with you and, and as being part of the director along with, uh, Tomaselli. Yes. Yep. And how much it affected us, this Lakota nation versus United States and this branch of a larger history that Most Americans don't know, let alone our own people, so it it just intensifies the rest of the Lakota people like Milo Yellowhair and others who know about that history from at least 1970, 1960 and before. What you brought out was the, the strengthening a lot of not just Lakota nations, but other native nations to really stand their own ground and be resilient to consistent onslaught of colonization. So I want us to delve into your involvement as far as bringing this film out.
2: Oh, yeah. Thank you, Tokushin. Yeah.
3: So would you give us sort of your your involvement, where it started, and what made you think about doing this film?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's part of, I guess, my creative process, which is... um, I don't really set out to do anything uh, out of my own ambition, but I kind of open myself to possibilities. And every once in a while, uh, opportunity will arise. And if it feels like I should be a part of it or I should support it because I love stories so much, I'll definitely follow my intuition and just go forward. And and I think that's kind of how, uh, as much as, uh, you know, growing up here in South Dakota and, and knowing about um, the issues surrounding the Black Hills and hearing uh, my community members and relatives uh, speak on those things, I never felt that I was uh, qualified to speak on any of those type of subjects. However... I I think that for whatever is goes on in the creative process and the mystery that kind of surrounds that, I I had a part to play in trying to amplify some of the voices of the people that we have today. And there's a long list of people that are committed to, you know, a lot of these uh, subjects in the film. But, you know, we're just taking a small sliver of uh, what we have right now.
3: And what that is that you talk about we have right now as a Lakota nation is that we're very appreciative of, of what is still there and knowing that maybe there's a lesson to be learned for other Americans to see what we've been through, but now that they are going through, so to speak.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think that my experience here working in the for the Oglala Sioux Tribe and, and working with uh, people that aren't too familiar with uh, South Dakota's indigenous nations or the Ocheti Shacoin or any other tribes that had ties to this area, there's a real lack of uh, education and, and a real lack of uh, access point for them to try and understand um, the people that lived here and just even general basic facts, you know, a lot of people have a hard time wrapping around the how each tribe is unique to themselves, but yet still kind of fit under this complex system um, that can link together at any point, which is Ocetisha coin. And, 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 and I think that our education, you know, really done a, a disservice to a lot of those uh, non-Native people. And I think that as we move forward, I know that in the state of South Dakota, you know, there's some concerns around uh, critical race theory and all of these things that seem to be under attack. But we can't. I'm a firm believer that we cannot just sweep something under the rug because it will eventually come out some way. A story will always survive. It's always embedded somewhere whether it's in the land in the black hills or if it's in a person's memory if it's a fleeting image of something that happened a long time ago they'll always remain and so you know if we want to try and improve our our people's uh, quality of life we have to confront the the issues of the past
3: one of your guests our speakers, Mary Nagel at the charity, yeah. she talked about the past, just being in the past, and that's what we want it. But she said that we're actually doing harm to ourselves if we um, don't address or redress what happened, but it's actually going on today, like you alluded to.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that you look at it as a nation and as an individual. If you have something that's bothering you, a wound that's festering... If you think of the nation as having a wound, you can't just ignore it. I mean, it it will, it will come about. And so I know that it's easy for people who don't believe in Lakota history or, or what, how events transpired to just brush it under the rug as old history, old things that happened that are no longer relevant. But that's not the case. It's very much relevant and alive today as it was uh, for our relatives, you know, over 150 years ago. So I, I can't buy into that logic that the treaty is just an old relic or a dusty piece of paper with no bearing. In American society, um, we have a lot of people that still proclaim, you know, that, as long as our American constitution is relevant, then our treaties are just as relevant as they are.
3: Let's talk about the treaty, especially to the Lakota people, is uh, the chat Ocheti the X Mark, the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. And and one of your narrators, one of your contributors, Leili Long Soldier, said something about having the X Mark and there is a bodily reaction to that. Because the X marks the spot, and I want to take it into a metaphor that the X marks a treasure, the marking of a treasure in the middle of the 1868 treaty. Can you expound on that thought?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's really quite remarkable that a lot of our relatives, the foresight that they had and, and just, you know, how, how they viewed, you know, their existence way further beyond than what probably American uh, society or government was concerned at the time. And I think that, yeah, that X, it it represents a whole lot of things. And, and, And I think that going back to what I said about history and these events, such as that uh, individual who put their X on that piece of paper and how that those events are still alive. Because like Layli said, when we think about history or even if we are cut off from history, we still have a bodily reaction to um, the events linked to our past. And a lot of them are rooted in trauma because you think about that, our people went through warfare. And I don't think the American government realizes that long-term impacts when a nation is subjected to the traumas of war. And I think that's kind of why my heart goes out to Ukraine, because that's going to be a very long process of healing that needs to take place over there because of that brutality that can be found in the clasp of war. So when when we think about our lives, we were very healthy people, uh, weren't necessarily plagued with diabetes and all of the physical ailments that we have today. I mean, I think a lot of that is an embodiment of mm-hmm. those events going back to the treaty and how that still affects us to this day.
3: No, that's a good observation. Thank you for that. And if I could just add something, I know the X really meant something to me when I first read it way back in my younger days. The X, oh, that's a sacred Lakota symbol. You know, what is above is below. So maybe the X, without people knowing except a Lakota, or really putting it in like, like the movie says and takes you forward into the seventh generation when uh, the grandson of Chief Red God comes on and talks about he's the fifth generation and he's holding his grandchild, uh, the seventh generation. What does that mean to people if they were just hearing us for the first time?
2: Well, I, I think it's, again, that long-term uh, viewing that uh, a lot of indigenous nations kind of had. You think in American society, I mean, it just kind of seems like we're consumed with what's now, what's in the moment. And and I think that our culture, everything's driven about what you can do right now, how you can make yourself richer, how you can make yourself, uh, give yourself more opportunity. You don't necessarily think that maybe some of those that things have ramifications for the future. You're just consumed about what happens right now and how you can better yourself for right now. And, and to me, that was what it, this seventh generation thinking or the mindset that a lot of uh, our people uh, maintain is truly innovative. Because at some point, we may have to, regardless if we're an indigenous person or not, We may have to start thinking that way um, if we can't control some of the things that are going on with the the planet. So if we don't start kind of adopting that mindset and thinking about long term, we, we may be in trouble. I don't know. You know?
3: Yeah. Let's fast forward now to the 20th century where in 1980, they supposedly Found that they were wrong and said, We're going to give you $105 million for millions and millions of acres. And basically, that 1868 treaty demarcation only in monetary award, but not the land back. So that takes us now into the modern day land back issues, where even in 19, 2009, where Barack Obama issued this apology, but they buried it in sort of the Department of Defense. Appropriations Act, and no one heard about it. There wasn't any, any Natives there. Like in, 19, in in 1868, there were Natives there. 1980, there were Natives there. So could you take us into this present mindset that we have as Native people, especially Lakota people, and Mark Tilson leading that with the land back issue?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I, I really have discovered um, through this project and then through my work here with the tribe There is a lot of curiosity. I think there's a lot of optimism for obtaining land back for a lot of the tribes. Probably you could maybe make an argument that it hasn't seemed as close as it has in a very long time. I think that even in 1980, the idea of getting any some sort of return of land may have still been very far away despite the ruling and everything that occurred. I, I think that we still have a contentious relationship with the United States government and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And there, there's a lot of room for some major uh, shift. And, and I think that looking at the land, um, we know that our people were very conscientious about managing their lands. Uh, throughout thousands upon thousands of years. And we know that the in just a brief amount of time, the level of unbalance that occurred from, you know, resource extraction, driving animal species almost to the brink of extinction, some uh, total extinction. In just a very short amount of time, there was a lot of uh, scar tissue that's left behind. And so I think that at some point, you know, those that can help move the return of land back will start to realize that if you take care of the land and you view it as something that you're a part of and not just a resource, you know, good things will happen. And who better to do that than a lot of our tribes who basically were attacked for those kind of beliefs
3: those ways of knowing such as an elder Phyllis Young that you have she talks about those days when she was working for the government then she heard the word from like she Mona Russell means and and basically from that point on she talked about the um, the knowledge and how it transformed her into knowing that wow lakota people will die for the land because that, that's what that means to us as Lakota people. But I'm also wondering, you know, we'll go into the collective memory she talks about, but also Standing Rock that, that leads to mostly this film is the modern day. You can take it back to the 1800s, even the 1700s. But to today is that modern day resistance, not just physically without guns, but in person, in heart, with the land showing up basically is what you're, what this film is also about. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I seen a, a meme, Tokushin, mm. uh, that said World War Three is going to be spiritual. And I seen that floating around on the, the internet. Yeah. And, and I think that Standing Rock, you know, was a good example of that because you know, for all of the things that you could have war for, whether it's land, resources, uh, gold, um, we've all seen and done that. Or we, we, we've, we've seen that through history. It's nothing new. But I think that we're kind of at a breaking point as far as what we need to do for ourselves in order to allow our spirits to kind of uh, continue to grow. And 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 I think that we have to confront a lot of the problematic things that you can find in um, living today, like uh, you know resource extraction. Mm -hmm. um, Find ways to attack greed. uh, Try to find uh, compassion, and and basically ascribe a very high value to anything that holds a spirit, whether it be an animal. Whether it be a person that's on a street corner that may not have a home, we have to really ascribe a very high degree of value to everything that's around us. If we don't do that, I think we have trouble and we are going to have conflict again. And and I think that Standing Rock was vindictive of that. And and Phyllis, you know, she said something to me, and I, I, we. This clip may not have been a part of the documentary, but she said, we are still waiting for the United States to do the right thing. So all this whole time, Phyllis's grandma, uh, Phyllis's great grandma, all of these people, your relatives, uh, my relatives, everyone who has links back to those early days when uh, conflict uh and bloodshed happened in our homelands. There has always been somebody waiting for the United States to do the right thing. And the United States really prides itself on um, honor and and all of these good things, equality. So there's still a uh, amount that's due.
3: There's a totally a, a great amount that's doing, and people are. Always, Why can't you talk about anything good that the United States is doing? Well, yeah, it's hard to find. And I could talk about the people individually, yeah, human beings. But when it comes to uh, the system that put us in the box called reservations, and but now your voice, other voices such as Two Bulls, I think it was. Oh, Crystal,
2: uh, yeah, Crystal.
3: Crystal, and then also Candy Brings Plenty said. She said. Because she grew up on the west side of Rapid City that she found that she could beat them with her voice.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, that, that goes to the old philosophy. One time an elder here told me here in Pine Ridge, and uh, this might be an old old proverb, you know, from back in mm-hmm. the old days. But uh, he said, the pen is mightier than a sword. And <laughs> what I think that is, is... No matter what happens in the world with, uh, you know, destructive forces, um, killing, um, all of those things, it's what we hold in our hearts that are the most powerful weapon that could ever be. And it's real easy to make an enemy. We could do that in a matter of seconds. Uh, But it's very hard to make a friend. Hmm. And if you can make your friend, that's how you defeat that enemy. Thank you so much
3: for that. We're coming to the end of this interview, and I wanna quote the elder Milo Yoloher, when he, as you know, too, Mie Malakota, that whole statement right there just says something without saying, it's about me, but it's about the the Ocheti shakoni, And that that means that if we are trying to defend water, keep the water clean and the gland clean, the air clean, food clean, our minds and hearts clean. Then we're doing it for all life. And I think one of the uh, the women said this very clearly. That Oh Crystal said it. That this is what we do as Lakota people. But the United States or maybe the citizenry think that we're only doing it for the Lakota people. But it's not us. True.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, my my own life, you know, was riddled with trauma and really deep personal struggles. And I found myself, you know, representing the Oglala Lakota Nation as a part of uh, the governance system. And, you know, there's, there's a contentious relationship between um, the IRA government and the people at times. But Milo said something to me, and he said it in this uh, documentary, that despite how frozen my heart has become, with trauma, bad news, challenges. It pierced that that frozenness. And it's a hallmark of leadership that I think I'll carry for the rest of my life. And it it came to him from an older gentleman in his life when he was a lot younger. And he said to uh, Milo, even a dead dog deserves respect. and. You think about American society and, you know, how fast-paced everything is. And uh, a lot of times, even like a dog or an animal can be considered, you know, lesser than. But him saying that, that even a dead dog deserves respect, that means to me, in the position that I am in, that no matter who I encounter, whether or not I may be in a better position than them, I may have more things than them that I always remember that every individual that I encounter uh, deserves respect because they have a spirit and, and to, to really do my best to try to help them. And, and that's the greatest gift that I got from uh, Milo as I go forward throughout life. And, and I really wish that, you know, United States leaders, I know that there's a lot of uh, rhetoric going around, a lot of mudslinging, misinformation. But if they can fundamentally ascribe to a higher degree of compassion towards all people and and all things that are alive, I think that that would really put all of us in a better position, you know.
3: Well, I want to thank you very much, Jesse Shortpool, and to... Laura Tomaselli, for you all bringing this film, Lakota Nation versus the United States, and it's it's just an honor to have young people such as yourself bringing and keeping that that seventh generation, that dream that we all have innately, that you know there will be a continuance of our people because it's our prophecy. We'll we'll be here forever, as Indigenous people. So, but it's an honor to have you here, and thank you for your time. I know you're a busy man. And oh, thank get- you,
2: Mr. Ghost Horse. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Where, where can we see this? Where can uh, anybody see well, this? Well, we're working on that right now. Um, mm-hmm. We do have a, a, a another film festival in Traverse City at the, the end of July. But we're also trying to um, get it to a streaming uh, service so that we can get, you know, more eyes on it. And then, of course, we'll still be continuing through the festival circuit with... Uh, I think the most uh, pertinent would be to get it to uh, people here back in the home state, their homelands, the mm-hmm. Dakotas, mm-hmm. you
3: know. Good to see you, man. Yeah. You too. West you too. take care. West Don't care. And that was Jesse Shortpool, who is co-director, along with Laura Tomaselli, with the documentary film Lakota Nation versus the United States. Right here on First Voices Radio, my name is and Ghost Horse. And we'll return after this time sequence. Say a little bit about that song you just heard by Childish Gambino with "Feels Like Summer." It's really a climate change song if you listen to the words and how we have arrived at a dire situation where kids don't listen to the parents, maybe the parents don't listen to the Earth, you know. And we all want to change, but no one is really changing because we're expecting others to change instead of ourselves. So it's really about the message in the music. Feels like summer. This is First Voices Radio. My name is and Ghost Horse. And now we move into the second half with Dr. Tink Tinker of the Osage Nation, or Wasage, who talks about the reality of his people, who were the richest people per capita in the world in the 1920s after oil was discovered on land where they were forcibly relocated, and some thoughts, and offering some thoughts on the upcoming movie Flowers of the Killer Moon based on the same book. He is a Clifford Baldred Emeritus Professor of American Indian Cultures and Religious Traditions and an activist in urban American Indian communities for four decades. And he joined the faculty at Iliff School of Theology in 1985 and brought an American Indian perspective to this predominantly Euro Christian school. Chante Washte na tink tinker and as a part of history that should not be ignored or even forgotten in history you may not even heard of when it comes to the Osage Nation and what is now the state of Oklahoma. And the to the listeners who will be hearing part of this story and sort of a background of a larger tale, the Osage tribe were driven off their land, so to speak, or maybe they just moved. But we don't know that true story and were forced to move into Oklahoma when a valuable resource was discovered a dark plot to exterminate the Osage was initiated and this is the part that we don't know about. We think that all the natives were crammed into the U.S. state of Oklahoma, but there's a bigger tale behind that part of Northeastern Oklahoma with the Osage Nation and Tink Tinkers is part of that nation and he's Osage. And I wanted to hear more about what really happened back in the 1920s and even before that, Tink. So if you could take us through the historical value of your nation uh, and how it got to Oklahoma into that situation that happened in the 1920s with the discovery of what they thought was bad land on top and they probably figured you all were going to die off. And But there was something underneath it that they needed so bad and that that history of oil as I came out of the land and still continues to come out of the land of native people here within Turtle Island. So Tink, welcome to First Voices Radio. And there's a lot of lot of questions in what I just asked you. So <laughs> please start where you want, yeah. Yeah, the Osage Nation ended
4: up in Oklahoma after being forced to give up what is today the entire state of uh, Missouri and a big chunk of Kansas. In 1872, we were on the final reservation, we thought, in southern Kansas, on what they called the Osage Strip. But that wasn't good enough as uh, white settlers began to squat on Indian land on the Osage Reservation. Instead of doing their duty uh, by treaty and running off the squatters, uh, the U.S. government uh, moved us once again, this time down to Oklahoma. It's a, was originally a 1.2 million acre reservation along the Arkansas River w- with a line coming north out of Tulsa and uh, cutting across the, across the north, the boundary of the modern states of Oklahoma and, and Kansas. So it's a good sized chunk of territory. We were relieved of most of that land after they discovered oil on our reservation uh, in the late 1800s, 1890s. But by the 1820s, when uh, this book, Killers of the Flower Moon, was written about, oil was big business in Oklahoma, big business on the Osage reservation. And, And there was a lot of money flowing into Osage bank accounts. To ensure that Osages dealt with their money In a good way, each Osage was assigned a white guardian, usually a lawyer, who took a big chunk of all the Osage money each year as it came in, in order to manage Osage funds. And then any Osage who wanted to go to Tulsa and shop, think about this, full-grown human beings, adults, had to go to their guardian to ask for spending money to go shop in Tulsa. It was a, a most demeaning system, but one intentionally invented in order to relieve Osages of excess wealth and, and put it in the pockets of deserving white Christians. Well, even that wasn't enough. By the late teens, many Osages began to mysteriously die, and their interest in the oil monies was then passed on as inheritance sometimes being inherited by white creditors or white guardians or even white spouses in other words it was liberated from osage people entirely and put into white hands so that most of that great osage wealth didn't end up in osage pockets at all once White people began to figure out they could marry Osages and control Osage wealth that way. They also figured out they could kill their spouses, and as surviving spouse, inherit that Osage headright. Well, this book by David Graham at least picks up on some of that, although not much of it. He picks up on one celebrated case that was in fact investigated by the FBI. But what people need to know about his now famous book, Killers of the Flower Moon, in my opinion, is it ain't about Indians. It's not about Osages. It's really an FBI thriller novel about the founding of the FBI. It's about Tom White, the FBI agent, and and, uh, Hoover, the director of the FBI. And if you want to know more about a romantic version of how the FBI got started, you can read that book. You won't learn very much useful about Osages, even though I'm the odd man out, Okison. Most Osages love the book because not much has been written about us, so that at least we get credits for being mentioned in this book. Uh, the, The murders included. The murder of Bill and Rita Smith, their home was blown up in Fairfax on the west side of the Osage Reservation, uh, about a block from where my father was growing up. My father was just a little tyke at the time, but he remembers then growing up playing in the rubble uh, of the explosion of that house. And what we know now is that it was uh, Bill Smith's uncle who designed the bombing of his house so that he could inherit Rita Smith's oil money. This book catalogs something like 20 murders that are all attributed to the mastermind rancher William Hale, uh, who eventually then went to prison for that. But the truth is, and the book only mentions it in passing as a possibility, there were hundreds of Osage people murdered back in the 19 teens and 1920s in order to gain access to osage oil monies so that osages look back at that period and call it the reign of terror fear post-traumatic stress syndrome and osages still live with that today because
3: they live with the memories of that i think i went to school when i was young a young osage man came forward he talked about you know i was told that the story that you said, you know, where the white men married or the white people married into the family, then the children disappeared. But he said some of those children were shipped out to, at that time, Haskell Institute and other boarding schools when they're very, very young basically to, you know, get rid of the inheritance that these young Osage children had and they were never heard from again. So he related it back then that That was part of the disappearance of the the inheritance of the children, very young, and that disappeared. And that was easier for the white males to get rid of the spouses who were Osage women and then pick up the land that way. They were swindled. And that's how a lot of oil companies got started back then. Could you lead us into that history? Yeah, the two major
4: oil firms that interacted with Osages, and there were many more. But the two big ones were Conoco and uh, Phillips Petroleum. Conoco was uh, on the west side of the reservation uh, out of Ponca City Uh, and uh, Phillips was on the east side of the reservation in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And they dealt extensively with Osages in terms of uh, the disposition of Osage oil resources and and ensured that they got the best deal on on those uh, what, what white people call resources and they're still major players uh in, in the oil market today conoco and phillips have combined it's now conoco phillips uh, and their headquarters has moved from bartlesville uh, down to houston but nevertheless you know they still control much of the oil welling oil well production
3: in osage county and that's all Osage oil. And is it true that one time your people were the richest people in the world per capita? And as a native person, that even though they had money, this didn't equal to the, equal access to privilege. That's right. That's right.
4: And, and we're told we were the richest people in the world per capita. But having access to that money and having that money are two different things. It is true that Osages. Uh, learned to uh, live high on the hog back in those days, more so than today. There, there were a lot of Cadillacs and Lincolns and, and Packards and big automobiles. And an occasional famous story then becomes universalized for all Osages. But there was one Osage uh, uh, old man who uh, didn't realize you had to put gas in a car. So he'd drive the car after he bought it Uh, and drive it until it ran out of gas and he'd walk back into town and buy another car with a full tank. (laughs) But see, even the invention of money is imposed upon us as a colonial device of control because we had no need for money
3: uh, until, until it's imposed on us and now we can't do without it. When we get to a point of even other natives being affected by wealth, and what goes out the window once we have money and we all have that like money crazy and we forget who we are. And and uh, that has happened through the education, through even settlements. And I think a lot of yeah. tribes have gotten settlements and they threw out their culture. And then all, all of a sudden they're, they're good Americans. That's right. That's right. It happened that way among Osages.
4: Once money started flowing in, All kinds of other traditions were forgotten, left behind as old-fashioned. Osages began to believe what the missionaries told them in boarding schools or in, in reservation schools. They needed to let go of that stuff. So today among the Osages, there's a common theme that our elders told us to put that away. And that's why they don't hold on to any of those old ceremonies or that ceremonial language or the language itself until now all of a sudden when it's almost too late they want to rescue the language and save it and unfortunately what they're doing too many osages is learning osage as a new code for english in other words it's not osage it's osage words in order to express english language thinking so that uh you know one one friend of mine uh was very proud that he had translated uh, Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, into Osage.
3: Wow. And and unfortunately, that reaches a bigger complexity because a lot of languages are being so-called saved. Well, they have a savior mentality behind it with that idea that, you know, we're not going to survive if we bring that old meaning, the deeper meaning, the quantum physics meaning into the economic jargon, jargon As you you would indicate in English even the logic behind it is gone and so now we have this other logic that says that we aren't valuable unless we attain the the privileges and standards the quota of the West and I think that is another really good program to look at right now so we, we say have just this-
4: part of that process if I can huh. just add this much are these uh, this reign of terror these the, the this these murders back in the teens and 20s a century ago, uh, and the post traumatic stress that resulted from that. So, of course, a lot of old sage people back then were saying, No, we got to quit doing these ceremonies. We got to start living like the white man so they quit killing us, you know, for our oil money.
3: Yeah. yeah. We got to
4: learn their way. We've got to send our kids to, uh,
3: to their schools, uh, mm-hmm. send our kids to their churches. And I, I feel that because I'm, I'm a product of that. And I say product because that's what, you know, I was convinced I wouldn't live if I wasn't able to speak their language and adopt the values and things. And I think that maybe that history is not so well known, even amongst the young people. Right. They've grown up without the right. PTSD. Right. What, what happens when the, the killer of the flower moon is also romanticized Do You Have you thought about that?
4: I'm waiting to see the movie. I think about it all the time. I actually uh, talked to our principal chief about it early in the uh, the making of that movie. And he was on top of it to a certain extent, trying to get uh, uh, Scorsese and company to pay attention to Osages and, and to make sure they filmed it on Osage land because they were looking for another setting besides besides the Osage reservation to film the movie, mm-hmm. which would have been a crime, I think. I know that uh, my brother had a speaking part in this movie. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, I think is his part, uh, and he told me that the and he was speaking to speak Osage. And he said to me, "It was made up Osage, completely made up Osage." And and he's a Hollywood guy. They weren't paying him to write script. So I said, no, I didn't crack it. I just spoke the script they gave me. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> because they did you know they handed him a script mm-hmm. and, and didn't pay him a consultant fee to do the, the,
3: the translating. So is there any good that's going to come out of this? Like you said, wait to see the movie, but you've read the book. You know, sometimes often the book is not as good as a book or a movie, or like you know vice versa. Well, I'm hoping the the movie is
4: actually better than the book, but it, we'll have to wait and see. It's yeah. really hard to say. As I said, the book is an FBI thriller. It's not about Osages. Osages mm-hmm. are just the foil for the book. Yeah, we'll see. We'll yeah. see.
3: yeah, yeah, know. there's so much we could talk about, and but there's so much that we don't know. um the public or uh, native people about the Osage, we just think that oh those Oklahoma Indians have it good down there, much better than the rest of the world because because we don't hear so much, but I think, you know, when when I'm thinking, well, wow, in the history of the Osage, where you were in Missouri in that area, and that beautiful land, and you put you way out in Oklahoma, which is still beautiful land, but it's almost um you're still there. And I think about Osage are still there. I could say that about any tribe, any nation. They're still there. We're still here, and I run into a lot of people who often dismiss that, and even ask, start, you know, confronted with, "You're still here, you know, you you weren't, you're not gone yet." <laughs> yeah. You get that all the time, you know. Um,
4: if we're <laughs> still here, yeah, uh, and still in Oklahoma. Uh, the the problem is we're immersed in the reddest of red states. It's like being Lakota in South Dakota yeah. or, or even North Dakota. The the governors of South Dakota and Oklahoma are, are two of the most anti-Indian governors uh, uh, in the U.S. these days. And the uh, this guy stood in Oklahoma claims to have Cherokee heritage, but but there's the bottom line. It's Cherokee heritage. He ain't Cherokee. Yes, he may be enrolled, but he has only Cherokee heritage. It's like somebody, an academic, who calls me up and says, "Oh, by the way, I have Iroquois uh, ancestry." What the hell is an Iroquois ancestry?
3: <laughs> it's, it's a passport, you know.
4: Yeah. But, well, it yeah. isn't even a. It isn't even a nation. It's a confederacy of these days six nations. Yes. So, yes. are are yeah. you Onondaga, or are you Mohawk, or Cayuga, or Seneca? What are you?
3: <laughs> yeah, and who are you related to within those? Yeah, who's plant? your grandmother? Yeah. That's right, that's right. Well, Tink, it has to be a short one, but I'm glad that you were able to come in and do this, and I know there's so much more we could talk about, and we will. I always enjoy talking with you, Teokas. I yeah. do a
4: lot of interviews, but it's always nice to be interviewed by an Indian by an Indian person who knows how to ask the questions.
3: <laughs> oh, good, good. Thank you, Doksa Akewa Telo Tink. Good to be with you. I, Gakuna. Dr. Tink Tinker of the Osage Nation or the Wasaje Nation here on First Voices Radio. My name is Tio and Ghost Horse, but I want to thank you all for being here. And I want to just bring up some something that, excuse me, I, I post once in a while too, this thing called space book or fake book or facebook or meta or whatever it's being called these days and someone asked me what do you think about artificial intelligence since so i have a few minutes here and i wrote something early yesterday morning because i woke up with this thought and said how do i say this in english and malcolm you might want to tune into this too but the danger saying got consciousness and the danger of ai or artificial intelligence is that humans Become unaware of its damage to reality. However, soothsayers of AI often declare biopsies of extraction, which result in consequential damage to Earth's indigenous cultures and in nothing more than post mortem examinations. Anthropocentric technology is a means to an end and a violation of natural law. It is defended and rendered to fit the binary to codify and gentrify anything indigenous. AI is an addiction, nothing else but an invention of the ongoing hollow phrasing of the same relentless advancement of empty evolution. You are no longer present here, but you are expected to track algorithmic reaction.
1: And my response to that is <laughs> if they could invent artificial intuition, <laughs> maybe we'd be talking. <clears throat> you think...
3: I Artificial intuition, but that doesn't go together. No, nah, it, doesn't. It's, it, doesn't, it talks, doesn't. it's like
1: jumbo shrimp or something.
3: <laughs> I want to go a little bit, maybe 30 seconds, back to what Jesse Shortbull, the first interviewee from Pine Ridge, the Lakota young man who is the vice chairman, of vice president of the Oglala Lakota tribe, who said that the Third World War, so since they have taken everything from Native people, land, materials, and continue to take... Extraction, even our ideas, that there's nothing left for the native people to take, be taken from us. So he said, so now we see what they think war is, but we know exactly what what war is. And right now, it's about a spiritual warfare, that they're coming to get your energy. So we'll create distractions like war matters over in Ukraine in other places, because they want you to think that's the way conventional war is. But people are forgetting about their own energy, their own way to be sovereign and consciousness, in consciousness with the earth. And that's what they don't want people to think. They want them to be in conscience where they're doing the right thing according to democracy.
1: Mm-hmm. Well... You know, we we did have a bit of a conversation about the, the uh, parallel of the fact that, you know, back in the Middle Ages, the way that the Roman Catholic Church controlled people was to control their spirits. Uh, you know, all knowledge was kept in the ivory tower and dispensed as needed by the powers that be to the masses on a need-to-know basis. But with the sort of disintegration of organized religion, for the most part, at least in you know western north america and europe and so forth australia for the most part you know uh, people don't adhere to that kind of doctrine as much mm-hmm. so the power structures have had to find new ways yeah. to to find a mechanism to get very to the core of you to find <laughs> you know to find your soul <laughs> if there I, was I, a I to,
3: be totally found. get that malcolm But the thing is, see, that's based upon superstitions which Native people don't have.
1: Time to go. Thanks. Thanks, Tioka. Thank you. Take care. Adios.